I'm Ira Kirschbaum. I am the editor of the Journal of Orthopedic Experience and Innovation. We have a great journal club tonight talking about revenue cycle management. Are you losing money in your practice? What are going to be the tips and the pearls? We have for us tonight three top experts, I feel, in this field. Uh, I'd like them to introduce themselves, and uh, we'll start alphabetically with Nicola Hawkinson. Nicola, maybe you can introduce yourself. Sure. Um, Dr. Kirschenbaum, thank you for having me tonight. It's really an honor. Um, for anyone who doesn't know me, my name is Nicola Hawkinson. I currently run two organizations that I'll tell you about really quickly. Um, my background, I started my career as an OR nurse working in orthopedics and spine. I then had the opportunity to work in a spine practice for about 12 years and really learned all the intricacies about running a business during that time from the clinical aspect to the administrative piece, as well as a lot in regards to the billing cycle. I then got my doctorate in nursing and started a company called Spine Search. We are a nationwide recruitment company. So my thought process after this decade in private practice and how hard it was to find people is what if we started an organization where our focus was an ortho, neuro, spine, and pain management, and our job was to help people find their people. So that's what we do. So sometimes we're finding practice administrators for private practices, service line directors for hospital centers, NPs, PAs, spine surgeons, and so on and so forth. So I've been doing that for the past 15 years. And as you can imagine, as that would go on, people would kind of call the office and say, what do you know about billing and coding? And I would always go, we don't do that. We don't do that. Refer them out to company A or company B. And then a couple of the smaller solo practices came and said, well, can't you just do this for us too? Because we're really not happy with our billing in-house or our current billing company. So we launched a second arm of the business called Core RCM, and that's full cycle, revenue cycle, billing, coding, and collections for those same specialties, anesthesia, pain, ortho and neurospine. So that's kind of what we do day in, day out. Um, I know we'll dive a little deeper into all the challenges in regards to that, but basically the goal was to become a resource. So if people have their billing in-house, we can just provide the audit and educational support and let them keep their people as their employees, how they like it. Um, if they want to outsource, they can outsource it to us that comes with this challenges, which we'll talk about later today. But the real niche is in the kind of spine and orthopedics piece and really helping practices and departments maximize their revenue, whether that's figuring out the best way to code, educating their coders, or getting claims out in a clean fashion and getting the money in. So that's kind of the breadth of what we do day in and day right. out. Uh, let's go with, uh, Lisa, Lisa Rock. Thank uh, you. Medical Solutions, formerly National Billing and formerly just National Billing. Yeah, let's see. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here and share my 40 plus years of experience in RevCycle management. Um, I'm not going to go through my whole background because it's long and, and painful in some respects. I, I started in this business before computers were used in a medical office. Uh, and before fax machines were used. <laughs> so I understand this business um, on a manual 
uh, level, and then we started applying technology on top of it and have been ever since. Um, so I uh, ran the business office for a large ortho group out in Bethesda. Uh, I was director of training and education for uh, Mamsey Health Plans out in the Washington, D.C. area. I was uh, there seven years. So I have the, the fun experience of seeing this from the, the payer side. Uh, and uh, then I went to work for uh, an ASC development and management company, national company, uh, and then 20 years here at Nimble Solutions as president of the company with 1,800 billers, 1,200 surgery centers in 49 states. Wow. Uh, we, we manage the rev cycle for um, surgery centers, uh, affiliated surgeons, anesthesia. Uh, we sort of do everything from soup to nuts uh, for the outpatient surgical experience. So. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I was when you said 49 states, I wonder if it was 49 states of mind or just actually 49 <laughs> states in the United States. And I'm wondering which state doesn't get didn't get in. Was it Texas or uh, Vermont? Vermont. <laughs> <laughs> I never. I would. I would have just said Hawaii. You know, like the obvious. Vermont has two surgery centers. <laughs> okay, that's it. And uh, Nader Sally, a friend and a uh, colleague, I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Thank, thank you, doctor. Excited to be here. Uh, so glad that Lisa gave the entire background on the company as we work together. Um, so I'm CEO of Nimble. Lisa and I have been working together. She started the company 20 years ago. Uh, incredibly talented revenue cycle professional, knows every, every aspect of it. So we've been working together uh, coming on 14 years now. Um, so, uh, it's, it's been great. So again, she gave the background on the company. I'll just give mine very briefly. I started life as a corporate finance attorney, and then I moved, um, realized, you know, billing hours for a living was not how I wanted to do things. So, um, ended up moving to investment banking in New York. So I went to wall street, uh, doing a lot of mergers and acquisitions, public offerings, debt financings. Uh, private equity deals, et cetera. And then I left during the dot-com boom to go to San Francisco and join Merrill Lynch, which was a really fun time in the kind of 99, 2000 timeframe. Uh, so got to see all of, all of that and it was extremely interesting and fun, but I always really wanted to do something more out on my own. So I ended up leaving in 2000 to start a company, which ended up being a revenue cycle company, which was um, before Nimble Solutions. And so we built that company up to about 2,500 people in six years. And I ended up um, selling that business and then uh, stayed on for a couple of years with my employment agreement. And then, you know, come 2009, I left to sort of move on to what was next and explore what was next. And that's when I was fortunate enough to meet Lisa. And um, we met, hit it off. And, you know, we came together um, there, so I ended up acquiring the acquiring what was National Medical Billing Services at that point, and um, we we grew the business over the next you know ten years about roughly twenty fold, and then um, we ended up bringing in a private equity firm uh, to partner with us three years ago. So this is all relevant, I guess, as we're having the financial discussion, and and we've continued to grow and scale. We acquired four businesses in 2022 and have been integrating those. Uh, and as Lisa mentioned, you know, so this was, she started it, Ground Zero, built it. I joined when we were around 35 people. And, and as she mentioned, we're about 1,800 people today. So that's it's great. Background. 
That's great. So I'm going to start it off with a couple of questions. And if anyone has questions, you can put them in the chat or you can raise your hand or you could just blurt it out and interrupt me or anybody. It's fine. Um, um, it's, it's just our way here on the open mic. Um, first question is more of a general question that maybe all, all of you can answer. I, when I first went to practice, you know, medical billing was uh, uh, Susan and Joan in a back office. The door was closed and, uh, you know, and some stuff happened back there. And now I get a sense the trend is that uh, revenue cycle management is getting more of a science almost. Almost like when you go to business school, you learn about management science. And uh, why are what is the value of that trend? And am I right that it's moving in that kind of scientific direction? And I'll, I'll start with who I see on screen. I'll start with Lisa on that. Sure. Um, I think it is a science, but putting the right building blocks in place in the right order will, will uh, really help you. For example, uh, your charge master, you have to really understand what goes into your charges and you have to look at it at least once a year. I see so many practices that have charges set at a lower rate than their contracted amount. And that's an easy fix that will bring revenue straight to the bottom line. So I think that um, starting with a good charge master and then on top of that, really good managed care contracts, not just the rates, but the language in the contract. Um, I did a lot of contracts when I was on the payer side. Sometimes I would scratch my head walking out of the meeting with the CFO and the and the and the and the CEO and the uh, and the attorney. I couldn't believe they signed it, and uh, and uh, I knew we would be getting calls in about six months after they started to see claims adjudicate, and um, and so really understanding what you're signing um, and not kind of falling for the typical pitch the the carrier will give you. Well, this is the only rate you're going to get. Um, you really have to understand the math that goes into setting those charges and then and then you have to review them and then it has to go into a proper software system uh, to manage it properly. Also, I see a lot of um, really cruddy software systems to manage millions of dollars. And so I think starting with those three things, and I'm going to pass the torch to the to, to next speaker, but I think having a really good, strong foundation um, and understanding what that foundation is, is a, is a, a must today. Nicole, would you like to give some thoughts on the, the science behind it versus, you know, uh, you know, Susan and Joan in the back office, just putting in claims and hoping to get paid? Um, absolutely. So I feel very comfortable saying I have nowhere near the amount of experience as Nader and Lisa, right? So here I am in the search business with the clinical background, and I'm like, yeah, we could do medical billing, right? And hey, guess what? Spine Search knows how to find people, so I'm going to find great people. I know the best Sallys and Marys in the business that are CPCs and no spine in and out and out of network and IDRs, right? So we know how to find people, and we found those people. But then we had to make sure that those people and the numbers all made sense. And that was the part that really hit me by the back of the head, because there's a lot of people out there with great experience, but reimbursements are declining. People are going from out of network to in network. As Lisa said, we have to understand these contracts and the amount we're able to pay people has changed. 
because of the rates of reimbursement. So that profit margin that used to be there, especially in this very niche world I'm in, which is spine, doesn't exist anymore. So the amazing out-of-network biller collector that comes to you with their grandiose number that someone else was able to give them back in the day, and they have the experience and they deserve it, but it didn't match with what we were going to be paid by the client. So I had this huge disconnect. So I was able to find those great people that existed that used to work in the practices that Dr. K is talking about, but there was a mismatch between those people, what they warranted in terms of compensation versus what we were going to get paid from the client and making sure that it was still viable as a business to run. And unfortunately, and I'm sure I'm preempting this, but then came the world of not who are the best old school people to do it, but who are the people that can do it in a rate that's affordable, which moved us towards outsourcing a lot of these pieces overseas. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it continues in that direction because it is a science and it's become a mathematical equation. Who can do this at the lowest rate they don't have to be in-house anymore um, to get it done uh, in a way that makes financial sense. Nader, you've seen this over a number of years. And so what are some of the big changes that make it, you know, a science and and has brought it to a elegant area that it is right now? Yeah. Uh, so, Doc, I think it's a great question. I would say taking a step back, it has it 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 has to it has to be a science today. It's evolved to a place where to be able to survive and compete, it needs to be, to your point, much more than an old school, you know, putting a bunch of people on something, you know, attacking things with sheer grit and, and labor. You know, if you, if you look at the landscape, you really have the ultimate David versus Goliath scenario and David can get lucky every so often, but he's not gonna win that battle too often. And so when you look at where we are in the world of healthcare reimbursement, you have, as you guys all know, a, a large provider group might be 150 docs would be very large group. Yeah. You're battling United Healthcare, which is a $500 billion market cap company. It has $35 billion in EBITDA. I mean, that's hard to count that high. That is who you're battling every day. They are as sophisticated as they come. UH is one example, Aetna, Cigna, the Blues, whoever, you name it. They're all significantly larger, greater financial resources. They have data scientists everywhere. They have actuaries everywhere. They are doing everything in their power to maximize profit. And if you look at what's happened over the last, just take the last three years, United Healthcare stock has doubled, 100% increase in the last three years. During that same time, if you take an HCA, who's the largest provider, largest health system, their stock has been flat during that time frame. UHCs, uh, while their stock went up by 100%, their EBITDA is up by 40%. It grew 17% last year. What's happening on the provider side? We're seeing CMS right now just announces a 3.4% cut in, in position pay. So you're in the situation where you're already smaller. You've got a very uh, a difficult playing field that's not level at all. And 
these payers are leveraging their knowledge and their expertise, their data, their technology sophistication to double the value of that organization. Think about the value that if they doubled in stock price in the last three years and they're 500 billion, they created $250 billion in equity value from basically when COVID hit till now. Wow. Finding ways to increase profitability, continue to increase rates, finding really creative ways to not pay claims as there's been a lot of discussion on the pre-auth side of things. So there's every step of the way from managing, you know, the managed care contracts, they have the information data on what they're going to agree to and what they're not. Every provider has got their own limited, you know, amount of information. So again, to, to be successful and be able to compete, you've got to find ways to increase your sophistication and do your best to level that playing field or you will not win. It's just a mismatch. That's great. I want to pivot to some very practical things. Um, I think that um, on the surgeon side, um, we are really good in the operating room. Um, we may not tell anybody we do that. <laughs> you know, we may not document as well. So uh, I'd like to sort of go around again, start, start with Lisa. And what are, I wouldn't say the top 10, but you know, what are some of the ways that the docs screw up, screw up, not grew up, screw up all the time. And uh, I, I don't want you to hold back. I always like to say that one of my lines is to take it from Anna Karenina, how all happy families are happy the same way. All unhappy families are unhappy their own special way. Well, all successful practices are successful the same way. All unsuccessful practices screw up in their own special way. So some of, what are some of the ways that, us surgeons don't help you. Okay, I'll start with one and then uh, we can kind of go around the horn, but um, not getting your documentation, your dictation done correctly, completely in a timely fashion. I mean, here I am, I'm gonna pull the hair out of my head because I actually have to review a missing information report that let's say, just for just for the ease of this conversation, a thousand dollars a case, a surgical case. I, I want these surgeries dictated so we can bill them out. And two weeks go by, and thirty days go by, and forty-five days, and I keep looking at this list, and they look at the list, and everyone's looking at, and I don't have the documentation I need to figure out what was done and get the claim out the door. And then we've got 90 days and we've got a 90 day United Healthcare timely filing. List. Yeah, <laughs> so right. here we are. We just lost a thousand dollars because I have the dictation the day before or the day after. And, and if there's something wrong with it, for example, um, the, 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 the diagnosis is a right side problem and the dictation says it's a left-sided procedure. I have to go back and get that fixed. So that's another delay. So um, I think getting the medical records dictated timely and, uh, and accurately, um, and then on top of that, if it is taking you 60, 90 days to get your dictation, I mean, your, your numbers are going to be a mess. Um, we have to decide how we're going to book that revenue, right? Because if that revenue is performed in, say, December, but now I can't even book that revenue until February and I can't pull the collections in until March or April, your numbers don't make any sense. Right. So 
I think that's one of the biggest ways that docs, and it's usually not all of the docs in 150 uh, provider group. It's like five. <laughs> but it's the same five. And, and it's the same five and no one can ever do anything about it. And you get on the phone with them and they, you know, bite your face off. And I don't care. I'm too old to care. But my my younger uh, employees care. They 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 take it personally. Um, and so I think fixing that right out of the gate uh, is uh, I, I would love it if I could talk to every doctor in the whole world and say, please just give me your dictation. <laughs> well, I have a question. We have enough docs on the on the call here. I see Kevin, Eric Siegel, Roshan Shah and others. Um, uh, Ranjan and and a few few more. Why why do you think those five? What is the rationale why people don't get their notes done? Why why do we think goes through their minds that they don't document an operative case? I mean, does anyone have have any idea about that, Russian? I I have no idea. I think that's but th there are times, and I'm I try to be really good. I get it done within 24 hours to get credit and get paid. But there are times where I forget. So some of it maybe they forgot. But if it's a chronic problem with the same five, I don't know. I mean, are these are they overwhelmed with you know normal clerical stuff like they don't have enough team support or whatever, and they're just super bogged down, or is it? It's kind of like, you know, you go through your entire training, you're not allowed to talk about money or how much people make or think about it. And so then you get out and practice and you're like, well, I don't really think about it. There's no place in my mind for where the revenue is. Right. But I don't know, just a guess. Uh, Kevin, you had, a, you had some. Yeah, I want to take the other side of Rashawn. So I was trained, you don't do the next case till you dictate. And you have to also have a sheet in front of you which has the CPT codes, the ICD-10s, everything is done and they used it and that's how I was trained. So it's your training from your mentors and I love my mentors because they said, you better talk about the money right out of the gate and never be embarrassed about it. And so I think that's transitioning. Um, this is a business. It's just, we're in the people business, it's okay. And I guess growing up in a family without a doctor who was a chief financial officer, he made sure of it because he said, doctors are stupid. So you better understand how not to lose your money. And so I guess I had a different upbringing, but my mentor said, you don't do the next case till you dictate the one before. But Roshan's right. The amount of paperwork to do it today compared to I'm an old codger, we just did what we wanted you know, 20 years ago. We didn't have to follow guidelines, but I didn't change in my dictation. And so I think some doctors, you know, and I know I see them on the screen who do the same case can get templates. And then you adjust depending on that case to make it easier. And so uh, it just becomes something that's important in our lives. And fortunately, Natter and Lisa are pointing out how important it is. We know if you do your own dictation, if you do your own billing to submit it to the biller, you can gain about $365,000 personally per doctor per year. We know the data. Wow. So. Yeah, it, it's amazing. It's in front of us. You know, what are some other ways um, the us surgeons sort of miss the boat? Nicola, any ideas? Um, so understanding how to 
dictate the op notes. Um, what I think is super interesting, and again, my niche is like small, right? So it's general orthopedics and spine, but some of the device companies have me talk to the residence fellows, right? So they say, teach them how to dictate their op note, right? And we've created templates for them and that's awesome. Then code their op note. So I start these talks and I say to the fellows, how many people are dictating their op notes right now? And like in a room of 80, no one raises their hands. And then during the break, I talk to the faculty and I say, why aren't any of your fellows dictating the op notes? And they're like, I'm not letting them dictate my op notes. I know exactly. It took me years to figure this out. I've got it right. And then it's going to be coded correctly. And if I let them do it, I'm going to miss a bunch of money. And kudos to them. They're right. So these fellows are coming out of fellowship and they haven't dictated an op note yet. So they're becoming, they're in a new facility and a new job meeting all new people. And then there they are to dictate. And they've got like my little uh, template saved somewhere on their phone to kind of work with. So they're already at a disadvantage and behind the eight ball. So of course they're going to rush into the next case and say, I'll do that later because they don't know how to do that piece because they haven't had practice doing it. And to the attendings defense, they've figured out how to do it and they do it right and they know how to get paid. Um, the other piece that was really interesting, real quick on the on the last group of fellows that I did, they were able to differentiate the templates and the op notes from the attendings who were once private practice and then became employed versus the younger group who have always been employed. And the ones who were in private, they know how to do that because they had to dictate, code, and they saw what got denied or what didn't get denied. The younger ones that have only been employed say, we don't even know who codes this or how it gets coded or if what sentences we're saying and what's getting denied or not. So the knowledge is much less for the employed physician. So they're at an even greater disadvantage. At least the private practice person, they may have learned the hard way by not earning money or getting those claims denied, but they learned, they figured it out. Someone who's never had to figure it out and just kind of, you know, the paycheck. Yeah. yeah so. just gets a paycheck and it goes to the abyss. I have someone who I placed in his first year. He's like, I've been asking for six months to see how my op notes coded, meet who's coding it. And have we actually gotten paid on any work that I'm I've done, I've done 35 cases and he's like, and no one will tell me. So Ira, before you answer Matt Barber, what Nicola said was brilliant. Um, and I will tell you as a fellowship director, I require my fellows, I do dictate because I have learned how to regain the money, but I have my fellows dictate at the same time on just a Word document. They have to submit it to me. And then we go over my operative note versus their operative note. And I've given them a copy, if I've done that operation before, of a previous operative report, not only to see what I'm going to do, but how to dictate it. Because I think we as fellowship and residency directors have that uh, onus that Nicole is correct. They have no idea how to do it. And when they're employed, they think, well, their paycheck comes, they're overpaid to start with anyway, and the hospital's making a 1% profit. Um, Matt, you had a question. Maybe you could ask it directly. Matt Barber. 
Yeah, so uh, mine was uh, purely self-serving uh, for joint arthroplasty, especially for those of us doing a lot of primary hip and knee arthroplasty and some revisions. Uh, are, are there opportunities to uh, upcharge for increased difficulty? How do we document that? Is there any low-hanging fruit in that arena? And I, I, I can try to answer that if you want me to. Sure, Lisa, please. Uh, there used to be uh, a modifier for more difficult cases, although increasingly um, carriers aren't recognizing that. And so um, I'll, what I'll do for you, though, is just check payer policy and I can send an email back to Dr. Kirschenbaum and let him know what I find out from the Big Ones Blue Shield uh, at Nessinga United. Um, we used to be able to do all kinds of things. For example, um, if uh, a patient was injured, went through the ER, followed up with an orthopedist and uh, had the initial treatment for, let's say, a fracture, and then the patient went back home and had follow-up by another surgeon, we were usually able to uh, separate that and get a, a different set of payments for each uh, practice, for each surgeon. And even those rules have changed quite a bit today. So um, uh, what I'll do is look look at each of the different payer policies on those more difficult cases, uh, uh, comorbidities, things like that used to weigh into those modifiers, but I'll find out by payer and let you know. That's great. That would be great to have. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Sorry. Um. Uh, Marty, Marty Nichols, you raise your hand. Yeah, no. So, so that's a good question. The 58 modifier was the one that you usually used for the, um, for those difficult cases. And then the 51 also kind of fell into there. How, how can they get away with it? If the system allows for, and these modifiers are in there and there's a set fee for it, why when these guys bill for it, can they just simply deny the payment on it? If, if in fact they meet all the criteria. It's, 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 there must be, I mean, I'm going back to Lisa and with and yeah. Nutter and your experience. There must be something in the contract that the great lawyers of United have figured out how they could find the loophole. I mean, what, what do you guys, what do you? Oh, with, yeah, a thousand percent. You might not know this, but maybe you do know this. Um, what carriers do, what I did, when I, and this was a long time ago, I was with a carrier 25 years ago, what we did uh, back then uh, was we looked at your, um, your cost per episode of care. So we looked at, uh, let's take, um, let's take a, a, a guy, OBGYN, for example, we would look at the number of C-sections uh, and then compare them with, uh, let's say the average was 14%. If your C-section rate was higher than that, you were flagged as an outlier. And we looked at every single thing you did. Same thing with every specialty. So with orthopedic surgeons, we would look at uh, how long your patients were in the hospital. We calculate that on a days per 1,000 and then, and then compare you with each other. We would look at the drugs you prescribed, the DME you prescribed. We would look at um, we would look at the place of service, anything that go, would go into that cost of episode of care. And then if you were an outlier, uh, we would make a personal visit. And I was one of those folks who would do the analysis and then go out and make a personal visit and try to figure out why your costs were so much higher. Um, were you doing testing in your office? Were you, uh, you know, 
what was going on that was driving up the cost of of care for you. Now, sometimes it was legitimate. Maybe your uh, patients were sicker than everyone else's. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons why, but they are looking at you, they assign a grade to you. And if you're an outlier, you know, you could get booted out of the network. So, so, so again, looking at that modifier issue, they would, they would use that data, compare you with other orthopedic surgeons just to see where you would fall. So it's important that if you are going to do something like that, and if it is payable, because it is more complex, why and can you support it? And I, I just want to lead into one more thing. Just because you get paid for something doesn't mean you get to keep it. And there's something called negative balance invoicing where carriers come back, they look at what you did, and they take the money back. And sometimes without even asking, they just take it out of future payments. And so understanding what you're allowed to be paid for is more important than actually getting paid for it. So I'm going to switch gears just a little slightly. Uh, hold on, there's a new message here. Um, Spencer, Spencer Montgomery, you want to ask your question, please? Yeah, uh, sorry, I was just, on that note, I was just wondering if um, a surgeon is a positive outlier where they have, say, lower average cost of care, is there a benefit to that when it comes to payer perspective? So funny, yes. You're actually um, designated internally and sometimes externally as a uh, center or practice of excellence because the data back then would show a lower cost associated with a, a, a higher quality with certain KPIs that the carrier follows. Um, uh, some of them I just mentioned. So um, anyway, yeah. Yeah, there, there are some positive benefits. Also, there can be direction of care, uh, especially today, if you're not capturing employer groups in your practice, it's not just about Aetna Sigma United Blues, it's about you know, Joe's Hardware and, you know, and, and the rest of these employers because they're using these uh, insurance companies as ASOs and uh, there's processing claims really for the decision making of, of paying a claim and, and watching that utilization is a lot of times today on the employer, which represents about 65% of these large carriers business today. So capturing that and also tracking the denial rate reimbursement uh, and that sort of thing by employer group is just as important as, as looking at the carriers. I'm going to switch gears just slightly and uh, bring Nader in a little bit on, on the, a lot of joint replacements, a lot of spine are moving to the ASC. And where are some of the um, issues of, of revenue cycle management in the ASC that, surgeons who own ASCs or who are going to be part of it. Even now, some employed hospital doctors are getting a chance to be part of ASCs. So that's a big area of revenue cycle management for you, isn't it? Uh, it is. And and I'll, I'll sort of combine that with actually your last kind of big question of what are things that people, you know, potentially are doing wrong that costs them money, because I think it feeds into this question. Uh, as it relates to that, I think that it's really important, you know, for the surgeons to separate themselves from being a surgeon for a second, whoever is kind of administratively in charge, medical director, chairman of the board, and treat, think of yourself as CEO of that, of that business and that operation, and really look at every single aspect from 
how are you getting patients into, let's say if we're talking on the ASC side, how are you getting patients into the ASC? What's the marketing initiatives? Do you have key performance indicators? Do you have experts in that area kind of helping from that perspective? And then all of your front-end operations, your scheduling registration, the pre-auth insurance verification, getting the pre-auth and the insurance verification processes wrong creates an enormous problem in your surgery center. It's the number one, you know, from a pre-auth perspective, they're not getting the wrong off or not getting an off. I know you've got a, a whole project underway right now, doc. Yeah. I'm not so curious to see the study and I think it'll be really interesting to analyze it. Um, but that is the number one reason for denials in orthopedics and very much with total joints and any of these high acuity procedures in orthopedics. But if you think about it, each step, again, developing, have great training, set a high standard for your people, have key performance indicators that you're tracking so they're accountable and you're tracking the results. And that should then go to, as Lisa mentioned, managed care contracts. Because whatever you negotiate yourself in that, in that contract, again, remember the David versus Goliath scenario. You've got a tough person you're negotiating with or a tough group. Negotiating those best rates. If you do everything perfectly from a financial perspective, the best you're going to do is collect 100% of what you should collect for that contract. So if you had the opportunity to have negotiated a rate that's 20 or 30% higher for your total joint, you could have gotten, you know, 14,000 versus 11,000. That changes the game for you completely. Um, and so again, developing those metrics and now the same thing on the coding side, on your, you know, claim submission, on your payment posting, on your denials management, having a really strong uh, understanding of what your top five to 10 denials are. And then looking at that from a cause perspective to go back to your front end to figure out, hey, here's here are the reasons why we're, you know, getting uh, claims denied, which is causing major cash flow problems, um, and so we've got to go fix that. So I think thinking about all of it together, it ties very much into, like I said, total joints, any high acuity procedures. Really, you've got to make sure the biggest problem specifically as it relates to total joints is. Uh, with the implants and not you know, either from a contract standpoint or how you're following up and not getting paid for the implant or you can pay roughly, let's call it $4,000 for a knee. Um, and that's hard cost to you. And if you end up not getting paid on that claim or not getting paid on an implant, you know, that's impossible to make money that cuts right into your, you know, straight hard cost for you that you're not, you know, getting paid. So those, those are probably the big areas of, of problems in general with, all of the business, you know, the business of healthcare and very much ties again with these, with these big ticket items. It's very interesting. Um, I, uh, I came up in an equation uh, at, at the business school, um, R minus W, R minus C equal W, gross revenue minus the checks you write due to surgeon behavior gives the ASC, gives the hospital working capital. Uh, one of the hardest things in revenue cycle management is the checks you write due to surgeon behavior. You know, one surgeon does a shoulder operation with two anchors. Another one does the same exact tear with five anchors. One insists on using company A. Um, another one uses company B and the prices there. You know, these, 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 this, do you ever get in as a company, whether it's Nicola or Lisa or Nader, or do you ever get in and and work with the ASC and the others on, hey guys, you guys are paying a lot of money for that when 
another ASC we know is not, you know, because we're not benchmarking enough, I think, in this country on the costs side. I mean, what do, what do you guys think about that? So so we do have to be a little careful from an antitrust standpoint. Uh, Doc, we can't specifically share all, you know, what other payers are doing. We can't share it directly. Obviously, we have knowledge in our heads when we're negotiating contracts. We have knowledge in our head when we're having, you know, discussions. Um, and so we can certainly be helpful and consultative, uh, but also have to be a little bit careful on exactly what we share, how we share it. Um, but but fundamentally, looking at those types of things, and I think, and, and this is the hard part of the business of healthcare, right? If this was a pure business, you'd have a CEO that said, you know, we're going to have Stryker and and J and J and Smith and Nephew, and if we we're gonna we're gonna put them through a beauty contest, and we're gonna have them all bid it out. We're gonna pick, assuming we think the quality is solid, we're gonna pick the lowest price. We're gonna negotiate to go with them, and we're gonna use one total joint. But the the challenge is now you've got you know seven different orthopedic surgeons that have seven different relationships, different experience, and and they're probably not gonna want to work that way. And I would say that's more common than not is what we see. And so I get it, right? It, I'm not saying one's right or wrong, but yeah. those are some challenges. So you can point some things out and they, you know, folks may understand that and say, that's great. But, you know, bottom line is, you know, here's how we're going to run our center. We're going to negotiate within those and try to get everyone at a similar price or, or close. But, uh, you know, maybe we're not going to get the purchase power of, of consolidating into one, you know, player. I would say a lot of times it plays out that way. Right. So what are some of the other ways the the surgeons sort of uh, don't help out? Um, May I just answer that last question? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I wanted to add, and I wasn't sure, Nicole, if you wanted to jump in there first before I do. I know that um, you might have some thoughts on that as well, on the five-anchor scenario. Um, No, no, you go. Okay. so this get this gets back to setting your charge master, and that includes the um, the uh, implant uh, cost as well. So understanding every single cost that goes into a uh, a case, um, so that you can uh, build your margin. And 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 so if you have if you're looking at historical practice patterns, and you have surgeon A that uses five anchors, and surgeon B uses you know three anchors. Uh, you're going to, unless you want that surgeon to change that behavior, you're going to have to set your charge master and negotiate your rates according to the practice patterns of your surgeon. That's really the best way to 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 manage that. So um, I just wanted to 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 throw that in there. Is so just understanding practice patterns, looking at the cost of code combinations, not just that first primary code. Look at all of the codes. In that case, for example, an arthroscopy can have 14 different code combinations. So understanding how your surgeons practice um, and, and, and figuring out those costs and all of the costs that are associated with that case. Um, and then and then and then looking at your understanding that when you do your managed care contract, you have to give a little to get a little, and you're gonna have to outthink them. And uh, that's easier to do, even though they united as this uh, uh, $500 billion market cap, you can still do it if the surgeon sits down with the uh, administrative team, like literally goes case by case and, and, and you put that time into the, into the front end of it. 
um, then I think that covers those uh, differences on the back end. Uh, Jason Young, you had a question, which I think is very timely, if, if you're able to ask yourself. Otherwise, I'll ask it for you. Yeah. Hey, doctor. How are you? Nice to see you. Yeah. Um, this is a great conversation. Good discussion. And I'm just curious, you know, there's a lot clinically about outcome data now, right? I mean, bundled payments, et cetera, and trying to tie it to outcome. So we talked about implants, reimbursement. One guy uses two anchors, another uses six. Obviously, difference in, in patient pathology and what's required for that patient. But are we taking any stab at really compiling all that outcome data retrospectively and empowering the physician to go back and say, I've done this procedure on a thousand patients. Here's my cost associated as a leverage to negotiate better rates because you've got consistent clinical outcomes. That is an amazing question. I mean, I think. Uh, I'm happy to take a cut at it, Jason. Yep. Um, Nicole and Lisa, feel free to jump in. I would say that is the holy grail in healthcare is trying to figure this out. Um, we are very early days. I think probably everyone on here on this call knows that it's very hard technologically um, you know, to track that. You'll, you'll get a lot of information and when you kind of go deeper, you know, one tracking tool fundamentally ends up being just cost-based and you end up getting a high rating because you're inexpensive. Another one is you have great you know, patient uh, uh, reviews you know, from a social media perspective or whatever tool you're using. And we've seen very inverse correlations with necessarily that and, you know, quality. Um, there are tools out there. There are companies that we know that are, um, you know, building and pursuing that. I haven't seen anyone that has enormous traction that has sufficient volume and maybe industry-wide credibility that you could just wrap that up. Because even if you have yours, what are you comparing it to? And what are they looking at to compare it to? So um, it, it is, but it is where the industry needs to go. I mean, think about it for any of it. My daughter just had um, an ACL uh, surgery about six weeks ago. And how did I pick her surgeon? I talked to a bunch of my good friends who were on this call, um, asked a bunch of questions, asked around town and got to the person who people mostly pointed to. It's not very scientific and we're in this business. So it's very hard, it's very difficult, but I do think that is, someone really gets that right. Uh, I've got a good friend who's building a company in this direction, um, but uh, you get it right, you're gonna have a pretty interesting business. Very, very interesting. Um, Jason, does that sort of answer your question to some extent? Yeah, I, it, it does. Cause I think, you know, we kind of chase our tail otherwise, right? You got to find the experts that, know how to to play this game with the payers and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but there's there's this other element. All the data is there. I think at Becker's this year, it was mentioned that healthcare leverages 3% of the data available to it. So, wow. <laughs> well, Jason, you know, who's looking at it, really, uh, employer groups, they're looking to see how quickly their their employees get back to work. And that's how they're judging the quality of the the uh, the care, the surgical care today, um, especially in um, in MSK. And Lisa, the reality is, who what what drives that person back to work? Is it was it the surgery went well, so well, or was it the pain management process was better? 
you know, uh, I don't know. All right. It's hard. It's hard to tell. It's hard to get into, you know, exactly that level of detail. I don't know. My daughter seems fine right now. I don't know if she had a good outcome. I'll find out soon enough, I guess. It's an Olympic year. You should find out. <laughs> she, doesn't, she doesn't tear it again. She can play in eight months. I don't feel like it's pretty good. Yeah, it works out. Well, my CF did not play in eight months. <laughs> you, that's a bad answer for an ACL, dear Natter. <laughs> that's that's what I've been told. Eight to nine months. So we'll talk. <laughs> better believe we will. <laughs> so I have a C CFO who always says, I just don't know where quality sits on the ledger line. You know? And and I think that speaks possibly to what you're saying, Jason. You know, if outcomes is its value is uh you know uh, outcomes over cost, you know, where where does value sit on the uh on the uh line? On the other hand, I was I'd like to ask my I guess if you do publish good data and it's in a reputable journal, like for example, I'm just saying the Journal of Orthopedic Experience Innovation, just for example. Um, if you were to publish it and show them your data in a negotiation, you think uh, there's there, there's any hope in that? Um, what do you think? Uh, any any of you guys take it? Any anyone? Look, it doesn't hurt, but again, they're gonna you know. They're not, they're not on your side. They're not looking to pay more. Yeah. So enough ways to discount it or say, I don't, that's great. Again, what am I comparing it against? So I just think it's, it's a challenge, but I think there's technology moving in that direction. I think and fast forward a few years out, I think we'll have a lot, a uh, lot, lot more scenarios, but it is very interesting. Again, the business of healthcare, you guys know, you know, you go hire Kravath Swain and more or Sullivan and Cromwell in New York, you're going to pay $1,500 an hour because they're highly reputable, they're well-educated, they're really smart, you know, and, and maybe you go to a smaller town, you know, not, not such a great law school, maybe it's not accredited and that same person's like, I'll do it for $250 an hour. You don't, it doesn't work that way in healthcare, right? You can't say, look, I'm smarter, I'm better, I'm more well-educated, I've got these great outcomes, so I should charge three times what the other guy's charging. It's not how this business works. So it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. Well, so Natter. I'd like to jump in and say, no, yeah, I don't know yeah. that I agree with that. Well, so yes, New York yes. City <laughs> is an island and New York City has figured out that there is stratification. You need to be a good surgeon. You need time and you participate in insurance and then you can do free care for those that can't afford it. And you say, sorry, you're going to pay for this. And so it is, there is a different model out there. It's not, traction yet you know residents and fellows are unionizing nurses are unionizing i think the day will come that sadly so uh, for me the, that we will see doctors unionizing and maybe then we can help ourselves to find the happy medium it shouldn't be you know something unreasonable for patients is there anything that um i know that there are some employed physicians on the call tonight um what would be some some homework of uh, that you as revenue cycle experts would want to give physicians to do? You know, so I'm going to give you some homework, whether you work for University of uh, Alabama, hello, Herrick Siegel, 
or uh, Columbia Presbyterian, Roshan Shah, or uh, Bronx Care Health System. I don't know why anyone would work there, but the reality is what what homework would 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 you give us to do? Like, uh, like I would I would love to jump in on that one. Okay. Um, I think uh, what I would add two things. I would say be really, really nice to your uh, nurses, coders, and billers <laughs> and sit down and work with them. Uh, but apart from that, uh, because there's there, there's this attitude sort of that anyone can do it from a surgeon. And um, if you if you sit down and you try to have a conversation with a biller, that that's a mismatch. You really have to sit and listen to them <laughs> and then try and help them figure out, help, help them try, try to solve their problems because a lot of times this is too difficult for them. But the homework that I would give you is think about direct employer contracting as a way to showcase your wonderful outcomes and your education and your expertise and take that to the folks that are paying the claims for all of these self-funded groups and try and get the market share for uh, and, and do some kind of deal with them, whether it's a bundle or whatever, their employees are going to get the best care and you're going to get, you know, an exclusive contract, maybe for the total joints or for, you know, anything over a certain dollar amount. But I would start thinking, start doing your homework on who the large employer groups are, who are self-funded, who would love to save money and have a high quality of care um, access. And that way you can have uh, maybe the employer groups sending sending their employees your way for certain things or all depending on the area you're in, but but doing your research and homework on that and as, you, a, as a future. You could carve yeah. out joint replacement, for example, or carve out revisions or carve out rotator cuffs. Absolutely. It's being done today. Absolutely. So that would, and 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 that is a way to grow uh, your practice and kind of bypass um, the, the things that we talked about before with the, you know, the things that the carriers are doing with your claims. Right. Nicola, some homework that you would give us all, whether employed or private practice. Yep. Um, and so this is kind of how I end um those talks that I give to the residents and fellows is to give them their homework. They're collecting their case logs for their boards anyway, right? And new to the AANS, so your neurosurgeons, is as part of their board collection, they have to include coding of their op notes. Now, to my knowledge, that is not the case for orthospine and or general orthopedics as of yet, but I don't know if that comes down the pike. You all will know better than me in regards to what AAOS will say. Um, so they're doing that part already. So in addition to everything Lisa said, get to know your staff, get to know the folks that are doing your billing and coding, have those case logs, have those op notes, have an understanding of what you coded versus what the coder coded, if it's only the coder coding, follow it through the life cycle and see what's getting denied, what got paid, is there language that needs to change? It's kind of like they're dictate, if we get them to dictate the op note and get them to do it timely, they think they're done, but they never know what happens anyway. So my homework is kind of like steps two, three, and four to what they already have to do 
especially right out of fellowship when they're gathering information for their boards and is case log. And then your op notes back to what Dr. Plancher said, what I tell everyone to do is keep files of your cases. So then you can go back and kind of go, oh, Joe Smith, that was like Jane Doe. Let's look at those again, right? So you, you have this, my billers and coders in the office have those files, right? And, and eventually when you're doing this for a super long time, you've got all of those more difficult cases, the simple cases, right? So your ACDF files like this and your scopes are like this, but then the, the larger cases, your, you know, T2 to the pelvis, right? You've got those and that may only come up again once a year, once every two years, but you keep a file of those cases, the simple and the complex, and you have them as a reference to resort back to. So that's kind of all of the homework I tell them to do. I don't know if anyone listens to me. Yeah, everyone listens to you. Nada, any homework for us? So I, I don't personally like doing homework, Ira, <laughs> but uh, uh, I would I would say learn the business of your business. Understand your financial statements, your income statement, your balance sheet, your cash flow, and then also get into a rhythm of looking at month-end reports for your practice or your surgery center, um, which would give information like what was your, you know, your volume for the month. And when I say this, look at from your own individual perspective and then from the, the entire group perspective, what was the volume? Uh, what were the charges? What's, you know, average charges kind of per unit? Um, what is the, um, uh, you know, what, what were the CPTs? Break it down by, uh, what was your payer mix? What was your you know procedure mix? Assuming it's all ortho, what's your what's your procedure mix within that? What procedures are paying? You know what? And start to get a feel for okay, a total joint with the blues is going to pay twelve thousand total joint with UHC is paying fourteen. I'm getting you know ninety eight hundred you know with my uh, index on Medicare etc. The cost of my implants are why so getting to a point where you get a good feel for the profitability of your overall group and profitability by case, you know, by surgeon, by payer. Um, and when you do that and you learn how to read those once or twice, then it becomes a very quick, easy read that you can just be in the rhythm of every month and allows you to ask really good questions of whoever is handling um, the business of your of your practice. And it keeps, keeps you close to it and makes sure nothing you know, uh, gets astray too far and that you don't end up leaving all that money on the table. I really want to thank our, our guests, um, Nicola, Lisa, and Nader, and all the participants on this open mic. Um, in the chat, I put in the National Authorization Project. If you haven't followed it, go to Joey and you'll, you'll see a blog on it where we're collecting data on the bad auth people. But more importantly, I just want to say thank you to everybody who showed up tonight. Uh, it was a, a great night, and we, we learned a lot. Cola, Nada, Lisa, thank you. And everyone who joined us, a big thank you.